Good morning. If you, if you brought along a copy of the Bible, please turn to our epistle reading, Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. If you're new to the Bible, uh, first of all, way to go. Welcome to the adventure. Use the table of contents to find this book because it's a little sliver, uh, pretty much close all the way to the end, closer to the index than the table of context, contents. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Okay, let's, let's get our bearings with this passage of Scripture. Paul is in jail. He's awaiting trial on a capital charge. He may be executed. There's a strong possibility, although he's convinced that God is going to save him from execution. Just a few weeks ago, we looked at that part of the letter. And that's what Philippians is. It's a letter, a letter that Paul wrote from jail to, I think, um, in, in, I think in Ephesus, some people think in Rome, it's kind of a debate. I land on the Ephesus side. And he's in jail and he writes this letter to the church that's in the city of Philippi. Now, Philippi is in Europe. In fact, this small group of believers that he's writing to, the church in Philippi, they are the first converts to Christianity in the history of the world on the continent of Europe. That's pretty cool to think about. 30 people, we think, at this time. So imagine in your mind the very first converts out of the religions of the day into Christianity. And they're in this town of Philippi. And Philippi is a proud town because it's a special town. It's a Roman colony way out in the hinterlands. And it's got all the benefits of being Roman. If you're a citizen of Philippi, if you're a Roman citizen, you are the elite of the elite. And there's a lot of people around you that can't measure up. And when these people convert to Christianity, it puts a serious strain between them and the Philippian pride. And the result is they are under a lot of pressure. They are being persecuted. It was not cool to be a Christian at that point in time in Philippi. Remember, the gospel is a royal summons to put your faith and your trust, and to imitate, and to give your allegiance to the Lord Jesus. And so for these 30 or so people, the very first Christians in all of Europe at the time, there was massive backlash against them. They were ostracized. They were slandered. They were discriminated against. They were accused of being superstitious. They don't believe in the science, right? They believe in these weird ideas. They were accused of being traitors. People would break into their homes and their businesses and steal their stuff. And when they went to the, the government, the government didn't care. People, they, they were being verbally abused on the streets and physically abused. They were randomly and unjustly arrested. It was tough. There was a lot of pressure on this little group of 30 people to get with the times, get in line, 
Treat sex and money and friendships and tribes and truth and politics and religion the way everybody else does. I think our teenagers in our public schools can relate to this better than a lot of us. And so Paul is writing a letter to this group of people. And the main point of the letter, the thesis of the letter, his central idea, he writes it out in black and white in chapter 1, verse 27. The one thing I would stress to you is this. Your public behavior must match up to the gospel of the king. You're going through all this stress, all this pressure, all these things that are messing with you. Your house is getting broken into, your business, your stuff is being stolen, you're being verbally abused, you're being physically abused, you're being slandered, like that means canceled in our day, right? You're going through that. And the one thing I stress to you is the way you behave publicly must match up to the gospel of the king. The way you behave as citizens in Philippi must match up to the way a citizen of God's kingdom behaves. And the areas of their behavior that he is most concerned about, the public behavior he's most focused on, is their unity and their holiness. In fact, to help us really hear what God is saying in our passage for this morning, let's just take a real quick look. Look at verse 27. The one thing I would stress is this. Your public behavior must match up to the gospel of the king so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. You got to be unified. And then in verse 2, In chapter 2, he pulls out all the stops. He uses his best rhetoric to beg them to be unified. Chapter 2, verse 1. So if our shared life in the king brings you any comfort, if love still has the power to make you cheerful, if we really do have a partnership in the spirit, if your hearts are at all moved with affection and sympathy, then make my joy complete by being of the same mind. Having the same love, being in full accord and with one mind, never act out of selfish ambition or vanity. Now remember, this is in relation to being canceled, in relation to being slandered, in relation to being picked on and abused. The key thing is never react out of selfish ambition or vanity. Instead, regard everybody as your superior. Look after each other's best interest, not your own. Wow, something must not be going right in Philippi. Here's this church, just 30 people or so, and there's all this intense pressure on them, and this pressure is not fun. Somehow, it's causing them to splinter. You can imagine that, can't you? You can imagine, under all of that pressure, how people will start getting on your nerves. Somehow, they're not... The result of this stress is similar to what's going on in America today. The pressure is producing polarities, inabilities to get along. And Paul says, hey, that is a big deal. When Christians are outnumbered, when we are not in control of the culture, when the schools teach a different value system, 
when the government is pushing things that go against the teachings of Christianity, when Christians are in the minority, unity is critical. Unity is a way that we publicly display lives that match up to the gospel of the king. So, let me get kind of medley and personal. Think about your own life for just a minute. Children, teenagers, in your house, think about your conflict with your brother or your sister. College students, just think for a minute about your conflict with other people in our city who are Christians. Parents, think about the sufferings and the microaggressions we receive and give our spouses. Teachers, your beef with other teachers who are Christians. And, and, and let's think about the roots of denominations that cause us to treat other types of Christians as stupid, as goofy, as not our friend, but as our enemy. A missionary church in Philippi and in Harrisonburg must strive for unity. Because unity faithfully displays the gospel of the king. Now this is hard when you put it that way. It is hard to stop fighting when you're in a fight. It is hard to stop judging when somebody has mistreated you. It is hard to stop holding on to the hurt that our siblings, our former friends have inflicted on us. Think of a Christian in your house, at your work, in this church, in another church. Think of a Christian with whom you are not of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Now, how in the world can I overcome the disunity in relationships of my life? How in the world can you overcome, teenager, the stress and disunity between you and your sibling? Parents, married people, how will you overcome the spiral of conflict when you and your spouse, it just sets in? How are we as a church going to actually behave in a manner that our lives publicly manifest the gospel of the king? This is so hard, but so necessary if we're going to be a faithful missionary church in this city. That is exactly what our passage this morning was written to answer. It was written to people who felt the impossibility of unity. To pull this off, Paul writes, Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, the secret 
to this impossible challenge is this. Philippians 2 verse 5. Think among yourselves with the mind you already have because you belong to the Messiah Jesus. That's my favorite translation of verse 5. Think among yourselves with the mind you already have because you belong to the Messiah Jesus. Remember, all through Philippians, Paul is showing us that it's right thinking that leads to right living. Philippians is a whole letter dedicated to Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We have to learn to think different than we think by nature. We have to learn to think with the mind of Jesus. In other words, with his mindset, with his way of thinking. In other words, Jesus has carved out a path. And now as king, the king of the world, he leads his people to the way of life that demonstrates his kingship and puts it into effect. Look, there's a saying that practice makes perfect. It goes all the way back to Aristotle. Aristotle said that you practice patience to become a patient person. You want to be courageous, you practice courage to become courageous. You want to become fundamentally honest, then you practice truth-telling to become an honest person. You want to become um, gentle, you practice gentleness, and you will, as time goes by, become gentle. Practice makes virtue, okay? That was around when Paul was writing. And he said, yes, with an if, no, with a but, as in, does anybody know where that came from? Nobody. Nobody. Chris, where did it come from? The Simpsons, that's right. (laughs) Reverend Lovejoy, yes with an if, no with a but. Paul says that about Aristotle here. You see, Christianity says, if you are a Christian, live what in Christ you already are. You are a citizen of the kingdom of God. Therefore, live accordingly. Live in a manner worthy of your king. The challenge of unity in our families, in our church, in our city is so overwhelmingly difficult. But the good news is King Jesus has carved out a path of self-sacrifice which energizes the whole project. Philippians chapter 2 verses 5 through 11 shows us Jesus' path of self-sacrifice. That is the battery that can drive a car out of conflict into unity. And we who are Christians, we who are in Christ, remember that is the first thing Paul says about a missionary church in this letter. In Philippians chapter 2 verse 1, the first thing he says about the Philippians is you are in Christ Jesus. Let me show you how this works in the poem. Philippians chapter 2, verse 6. Jesus says, and I'm going to read my own, my own translation. Jesus says, it says, Jesus, who since he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as something to be exploited. As something to take advantage of. His godness. He didn't see it as a thing he should say, well, I'm God. So this is what I deserve. I'm God. This is what I get. Instead of exploiting his godness, he emptied himself and received the form of a slave. Being born in the likeness of humans, 
And then having human appearance, he humbled himself and became obedient even to death. Yes, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that now, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, which is a euphemism for those who are dead. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This poem is a very, very early statement of Christian faith in who Jesus was and what he accomplished and how it energizes our labors for unity. It begins by saying that Jesus already existed even before he became human and that he was equal with God and his decision to become human, to go all the way, all the way down the road of obedience, obedience to the divine plan of salvation, all the way to the cross. This was not a decision to stop being God. It was a decision about what it really means to be God. The whole point of verses 6 and 7 is that Jesus did not look at his divinity, his godness, as something to take advantage of, as something to exploit. Instead, the eternal son of God, the one who became human as Jesus of Nazareth, he understood that being God committed him to the downward journey of becoming human becoming Israel's appointed representative to die under the weight of the world's evil. That this is what it means to be God. So when we look at the incarnate son of God dying on the cross, the most powerful thing we should think is that that is the true meaning of who God is. Jesus Christ Dying on the cross out of love for the world is the definition of who God is. And the whole poem turns on that one phrase at the end of verse 8. Yes, even death on a cross. In other words, this amazing poem has two parts. Three stanzas of three lines each in verses 6 through 8. Then three stanzas of three lines each in verses 9 through 11. And right in the middle, an extra line. Three line stanza, three line stanza, three line stanza. Weird line out of nowhere. Three line stanza, three line stanza, three line stanza. And the weird line that doesn't fit the rhythm, that changes up the tempo, even death on a cross. It's the turning point of the whole poem. So the second half of the poem begins in verse 9 with one little word. Therefore. Because Jesus did what he did in verses 6 through 8. Because he didn't see his great power and great omnipotence and great knowledge. and um, Because he didn't see being God as a thing to be to be insisted on and taken advantage of and exploited. Because he gave up. His rights by becoming a human, by becoming a slave, 
by dying the most unimaginably cursed death possible. Because he did that, he has been honored in the way verses 9 through 11 says he's been honored. In other words, in his incarnation and on the cross, Jesus has done what only God can do. Here is the very heart of the Christian vision of God. That within the one and only God, the creator and sustainer of the universe, we see different self-expressions, so different, yet so intimately related that they can be called Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In fact, in verses 10 and 11, Paul quotes from one of the great passages of the Old Testament, Isaiah 45, 23, where God says, to me and me alone, every knee shall bow, every tongue confess. You see, God, who will not share his glory with anyone else, with any other God, has shared it with Jesus. So Jesus must somehow be God. And so this progression from incarnation to death must be seen as the truest manifestation of who the one and only true God is. The one true God in the universe can be known. He's not amorphous. He is Jesus Christ who was crucified 2,000 years ago and rose from the dead. And this can be difficult to believe because it doesn't fit with our pre-existing ideas of God. But you see, here's the thing. The Bible says don't start with an idea of what God must be. Start with Jesus and rethink your whole image of who God is. And when we do that, it is challenging because here is a God who is known most clearly when he abandons his rights for the sake of the world. The way the church of the incarnation in Harrisonburg can live our lives in a manner worthy of the gospel of the king when it comes to overcoming the stress induced by conflicts and broken relationships that stain the church. The path for us in striving side by side for the advance of the gospel, striving side by side with our brother and our sister and other churches in town, the path for us has been carved by Jesus Christ himself. And if we adopt his way of thinking, his way of looking at his rights, his way at looking at his reputation, if we adopt his mindset, his way of thinking about himself, then we can act like citizens of the king while we are citizens in Harrisonburg. We can then, if we would look at ourselves the way Jesus looked at himself, we can then have the same mind, the same love, being in full accord, standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And what is that mindset we need to have when our spouse wounds us? Our sister betrays us? Our brother strikes us? Another church belittles us? What is the mindset we need in those moments? 
Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. This is how you should think among yourselves with the mind that you have because you belong to the Messiah, Jesus. The key to unity is to stop insisting on our rights and to offer sacrificial love that gives up rights. Jesus regarded his equality with God as something not to be exploited for his own advantage. And when we adopt that mindset, a mindset that instead of insisting on our rights, instead of insisting on our dignity, freely surrenders our rights. When we do this to the person who's mistreating us, notice how the poem ends. The Father is glorified. We glorify the Father by honoring the Son in the power of the Spirit. This is how we are to live. This is how we are to love. This is how we, this is who we are because this is who God is. The public life of Christians must display to the world the full truth which this poem presents. Just like the cross stands at the heart of this poem, the cross stands at the heart of the world, at the heart of history, at the heart of God. Jesus has won the victory and now... At his name, every knee will bow. And we, the church, are to be the pilot project for that final glorious day. Now look, if I lost you along the way because I tried to do Trinitarian theology real quick, sneaking up on you with it like that in a sermon, then let me just get really concrete. Remember what I've been saying since the beginning. Let's go to prom at Philippi. Let's pray, read, outline, and memorize. Memorize this poem. It is one of the greatest pieces of Christian writing in all of the Bible. Other than the cross of Christ, more pages have been written by scholars on this poem than I know of any other passage in the Bible. It is amazing. In fact, for those of you who are painters, I just want to encourage you, the earliest grappling with the cross that we have in the Bible is a poem, not doctrine. This is poetry that says poetry is better at saying doctrine than propositions. Memorize this poem. And when somebody cuts you off on the freeway or wounds you at work or at home, when you find yourself locked into conflict, recite it and then pray, Jesus, help me to have this mind. What does it look like for me right now to not exploit my rights? but to descend into the form of a slave and to trust that as I die in this moment, you will raise me up. If husbands and wives would do that with each other, can you imagine the trickle-on effect 
If brothers and sisters would do that with each other, can you imagine the waves? If we will do that with our brothers and sisters in other denominations, our public behavior will match up to the gospel of the king. Let's pray.